Here in our study today, I want to spend our time addressing the prophetic problems with preterism. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that preterism, uh, this is the theological term that we use to describe those who believe that all of the end time prophecies that we find in chapters like Matthew 24 or throughout the book of Revelation, they believe that all of these prophecies were fulfilled back in the first century and, and probably around 70 AD, you know, when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. That's right. The believer who embraces the preterist position has been led to believe that the prophecies that point to the time of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment, that these were all fulfilled probably in 70 AD when the temple there in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, in order to prove their point, preterists will insist that the abomination of desolation actually occurred in 70 AD when Titus sacrificed a pig there in the temple of Jerusalem. Not only that, but they also insist that the Antichrist and Satan have already been thrown into the lake of fire. They also believe that the dead have been spiritually resurrected from the grave and that the kingdom of Christ has fully come. Furthermore, preterists also assure us that the Great Commission has already been fulfilled and that the Lord Jesus has returned to Jerusalem where he is currently ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, you know, spiritually speaking. And while those who embrace this interpretation of end time events are quick to present their historical arguments, well, I can assure you that the main problem with their eschatology is based on the Bible. (laughs) That's right. We can see that their position is clearly unbiblical. And in order to prove my point, we're going to spend our time today comparing the end time position of preterism to the warning that Paul presents to the Christians at the church in Thessalonica. And as we make our way through the text before us today, we'll begin to see that preterism actually rejects the prophecies about the physical return of Jesus Christ. Preterism also rejects the prophecies regarding the rapture of Christians. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see that preterism rejects the prophecies about the rebirth of Israel. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand the second coming of Christ Jesus. Now, as you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that It was back in Paul's first epistle that he sent here to the church in Thessalonica when he sought to clear up their confusion concerning the second coming of Christ. Well, I have no doubt that the information that Paul presented back in that first epistle helped them to better understand these end-time events. Uh, Paul actually took the time here in this second epistle to continue addressing the arguments of those who were apparently presenting some form of partial preterism by insisting that the second coming of Christ had already occurred at the time when this letter was being written. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians. If you would look with me there beginning at chapter 2, we'll start our study at verse 1 where Paul declares this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. 
Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's addressing the false teachings of those who were apparently presenting a case for some form of preterism. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word preterism, it actually derives from the Latin word praetor, which actually means past, or it refers to something that's happened in the past. And while full preterism is based on the belief that all biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past, well, it seems to me that the Christians there in Thessalonica, they were actually being introduced to maybe some early form of preterism by a false teacher or maybe a group of teachers who were trying to convince them that Jesus Christ had already returned. In order to make my case, let's take another look at our text today. Look with me again at verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's attempting to calm the nerves of those believers who were being led to believe that they had missed the coming of Christ. That's right. They were being led to believe that they had already missed the second coming of Christ. And just to be clear, that word coming, which is found there in verse 1, it's translated from the Greek word parousia, uh, which was used of the arrival of a notable person resulting in the physical presence of that person. And in the context of this epistle... Well, Paul was clearly referring to the second advent of our Savior or the second coming of Christ Jesus. Proof of my point can be found in the previous epistle where Paul used the same Greek word four times in reference to the second coming of Christ. For example, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. There Paul used this same Greek word when he asks this, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, at his parousia? We find the same word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. There, Paul uses the same Greek word as he encourages them to become believers whose hearts are established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Once again, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, Paul uses the same Greek word when he declares this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul uses the same word again when he encourages them by declaring this. He says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these four verses that we find back in 1 Thessalonians, we find Paul using this Greek word parousia in reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here in the second chapter of his second epistle, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Thessalonica to understand that the second coming of Christ at that point in time was still yet future tense. There were those who were saying, hey, you missed it. You missed the coming. And Paul's saying, no, you didn't. Don't worry. It's not, it's not preterism. The parousia is still future tense. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered these verses. They put verses one and two like this. 
Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have a, had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Now, as we consider the content of these verses, it seems to me that there were these false teachers there in the first century who would come to Thessalonica, and, and they were apparently presenting these foundations of preterism by leading the people to believe that the second coming of Christ was already in process or had already begun. And as we consider the confidence of Paul's position that this was not the case at all, we should take a moment to ask, can we have the same confidence today? Can we have the same confidence when it comes to our position regarding the doctrine of preterism? Well, with this question in mind, we should consider something that the Lord Jesus said during the Olivet Discourse. And so with this as the focus, hold your place here in Second Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And as you make your way to the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to point out that those who embrace the preterist position, they've actually bought into the belief that everything Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 24 was fulfilled probably no later than 70 AD. And as we consider the prophetic promises that Jesus is presenting here, well, I find it difficult to believe the preterist position that all of these things have already happened in the past. In order to explain why I struggle to believe the preterist position, well, I want to uh, I want to turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 24. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 24, here, Jesus tells us that false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's actually warning his disciples about the false teachers who would come, come along and begin to say that, oh, he's, the second coming has already uh, happened or it's already begun or these sorts of things. And, and listen, the Lord Jesus is warning them about the preterists who uh, would have us to believe that Jesus has already returned in some sort of spiritual form. It's for this reason that the Lord Jesus actually provided us uh, with a way to test their teachings. That's right. The Lord Jesus has provided us with a way, uh, a way to test their teachings, and he did this by assuring his disciples that his second coming, his parousia, would be unmistakable. Notice again there in verse 27. There he declares, As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, the second coming of our Savior is going to be so obvious, it's going to be like lightning that flashes across a dark sky. Listen, if you're outside during a storm and it's all dark and maybe it's nighttime and there's lightning in the sky, do you wonder, what just happened? What was that? It's so hard to understand. No, lightning is unmistakable. We know it when we see it. And the second coming of Christ is going to be just as unmistakable. 
Those who try to tell us that Jesus returned in some sort of spiritual or invisible way, they're actually leading us to look for another Jesus who is no Christ at all. Please trust me when I tell you that the second coming of our Savior will be as unmistakable as lightning that flashes on a dark and stormy night. Not only that, but we also know that the second coming of Christ is also going to be a physical parousia. And in order to prove my point, let's consider another prophetic promise that's presented. It was presented on the day of our Savior's ascension. And so continue holding your place there in 2 Thessalonians. And let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Now, as you're making your way to the first chapter of Acts, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus arose from the grave on the third day clothed in a physical body. That's right. Jesus didn't rise up from the grave a spirit being. He rose up physically. He actually encouraged the apostle Thomas to examine the wounds of his crucifixion. He also ate with them on the shores of the sea and he uh, presented himself physically alive from the grave uh, with many infallible proofs. And with that being the case, we can be certain that the resurrected body of Jesus was a physical body. And with this in mind, I want to consider Luke's account of the day when Jesus ascended into heaven. If you would look with me here at Acts chapter 1, I want to begin reading there at verse 6. Here Luke tells us that when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Here in these verses, we find Luke's account of our Savior's ascension into heaven. And it was shortly after the physical body of the Lord disappeared from their sight that's when these two angels showed up there at the ascension scene. And one of them assured the apostles that Jesus would return in the same way, in like manner. They're saying, hey, Jesus will return in the same way that he was taken up into heaven. And seeing how Jesus ascended into heaven physically, well, then we can be certain that preterism must be wrong. Preterism must be wrong. Because when they point to the first century and say, oh, Jesus returned back in the first century, well, where is he? Where is our physical savior ruling and reigning in Jerusalem right now? He's not. And so preterism must be wrong. In order to further make my case, I want to consider John's vision of our savior's second coming. And so if you would continue holding your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. 
As you make your way to the 19th chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the preterist position places all of the end time prophecies in the past. And more specifically, most preterists have embraced the belief that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. And it's for this reason that they insist that the second coming of Christ must be a spiritual return and not a physical return because there's no place that we can point to a physical Jesus ruling and reigning over the earth. And not only that, but they also insist the prophecies found here in the book of Revelation were also fulfilled by 70 AD. And with this in mind, I want to consider the prophecy that's found here in Revelation chapter 19. You would look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here the apostle John declares, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here in these verses we find John, he's describing the day when the Lord Jesus will lead an invasion of the earth. That's right, the Lord Jesus is going to invade the earth. And according to John, he's not going to be alone. He's not going to be alone. As a matter of fact, the armies of heaven will return with the Lord. You know, in, this, in the little book of Jude, we learn that the, this is a reference to the saints of the Lord. In other words, the king of kings will be leading his heavenly army, which will most certainly include the church. And that's when our Savior and his soldiers will wage war with the enemies of Israel. Now, the preterists will attempt to spiritualize all of this in order to maintain their position. And yet, I personally have a hard time believing that this prophecy was somehow fulfilled invisibly back in 70 AD as the Lord led the Romans to overthrow the Israelites. Further proof of my point can be found in the fact that the prophecies that John presented here in the book of Revelation were actually written during the time that he spent in exile on the island Patmos. What this means then is that the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD. As a matter of fact, it was the Roman emperor, Titus Flavius Domitius, uh, who exiled the apostle John. This occurred in 95 AD. And with that being the case, I can't help but to wonder why would the Lord Jesus present this prophecy to John in 95 AD if all of these prophecies about his second coming were already fulfilled 25 years earlier? It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. And with that, we can be certain that preterism is wrong. Preterism is wrong because it rejects the, the prophecies about the literal physical return of Jesus Christ and leads us to uh, opt for a physical, spiritual, invisible return that no one can actually prove. Not only that, but preterism is also wrong because it rejects the prophecies that point to the rapture of Christians. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to make your way now back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the rapture of the church. If you would look with me again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together 
to him. Now, I want to stop right here because, uh, you know, we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about this day when the church will be gathered together to meet our Savior. That word gathering, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to a complete collection of something. It's a gathering together or a complete collection of something. And in a Christian church, you know, we can use the word gathering in reference to the general assembly, you know, where believers join together in the local church. And while this word can certainly be used of the local church, uh, Paul is actually referring to the day when every believer from every age will finally be gathered together in the presence of our Savior. All Christians will be completely collected together at the time of the rapture. Now to prove my point, I want to consider how Paul put it back in the first epistle that he sent to the church there in Thessalonica. So hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're making your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, well, I want to take a moment to remind you uh, that those who profess the position of preterism, well, they're not only convinced that all of the end time prophecies were fulfilled back in the first century, but they also insist that there is no reason for us to look forward to a future rapture. As, as a matter of fact, many preterists are quick to insist that those who believe in the rapture of the church are nothing more than escapists. You know, they want us to believe that those who believe in some sort of pre-tribulation rapture of the church were just escapists who are trying to escape the world before the tribulation that they claim also already happened back in the first century. So why would we be trying to escape a tribulation that allegedly happened back in the first century? The argument makes zero sense. But with all this in mind, I want to consider what Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 13, because here Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until when? Until the coming of the Lord. Will by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, as we take a look at these verses, I'll remind you, it was just three months ago when we studied this section of Scripture in, uh, you know, with some level of, uh, of depth. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go and listen to my exposition of these verses in the sermon titled, The Comfort of the Second Coming. The Comfort of the Second Coming. You can find it on our, on our website. You can listen to it for free. And I encourage you to do that. But to sum up that study with simplicity, you know, there's coming a day when the second coming of Christ will begin, and the second coming will begin with a shout, you know, which is the voice of an archangel, followed by the trumpet of God, and, and it's at that point in time where the Lord Jesus will catch the, the church up to meet him in the air. The, before Jesus actually arrives here on the planet, the resurrection and the rapture of the church will be initiated. Notice again there in verse 16. Paul again declares, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, it's important to remember that the phrase caught up 
together. It's there in verse 17. This word is translated, uh, or this, this phrase is translated from the Greek word harpazo. And the scholars who then went on to create the Latin Vulgate, they translated the Greek word harpazo with the Latin word rapimur. And rapimur is derived from the first person plural passive of the Latin word rapio, as you may have already guessed. And uh, rapio is the basis for our English word rapture, which is the word we now use in English to describe this catching away of the church. So when Paul says the catching, that the uh, those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, uh, this is the rapture of the church. What this means then is that as the second coming begins, the Lord, I believe, goes to the bema seat. And it's there at the Bema seat where he catches us up to meet him there at the Bema seat of the Lord. And every believer at that period of time will be rewarded for the ways that we served our Savior. Meanwhile, the prophecies about the 70th week of Daniel are being fulfilled during the time of tribulation, which will take place here on the earth. And while I realize that those who embrace preterism will accuse me of being an escapist for thinking that I'm going to get out and escape that seven-year time of tribulation, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. You can, you can call me Harry Houdini if you like. I am an escape artist, man. I, I am more than happy to go straight to the presence of my Savior and escape the time of tribulation. But, you know, this accusation, which is, you know, bordering on an ad hominem attack of, of futurists, you know, that, that doesn't really justify their argument. To call me, uh, who, who believes in futurism, an escapist does not prove their point of view. That attack on, you know, those who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church is not evidence that preterism is true. No, no, for the preterists, they have to prove that there was a point in time when all the bodies of every deceased believer rose up from the grave. So when did that happen? Did that happen in 70 AD? All the dead bodies of every believer, you know, rose up from the grave? When was the church that was alive and remained until the coming of Christ? When was the church caught up? When did a bunch of believers disappear from the planet, leaving behind, you know, their running camels and stuff like that? When did all that happen? They've got no evidence. They have no historical facts that these things ever occurred. That's why they have to spiritualize them and they, and they have to say that all these things happened invisibly. Well, as we wonder when all these things happened in the mind of the preterist, we should consider the promise that the Lord Jesus presented to his apostles. So continue holding your place there in Second Thessalonians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to the Gospel of John. If you would, let's turn to John chapter 14. And as you make your way to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to point out that those who promote the preterist position, they've actually spiritualized the prophetic promise of the rapture while simultaneously accusing futurists like myself of being escapists. And, and, and they want us to believe that, you know, the futurists like myself have mistakenly hoped in events that were already fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And in this way, they're actually rejecting the prophetic promise that points to a literal and physical rapture of the church. And yet, this is in conflict with the promise that Jesus makes here in John chapter 14. With that, I want to consider the way that Jesus presents this promise to his apostles. And so look with me there at John chapter 14. We'll begin reading at verse 1 where Jesus declares, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's assuring his apostles about the rapture of the church. And and I get it, he doesn't actually use the word rapture. And yet he was prophetically pointing to a day when he would receive the church to himself. That word receive Well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of a groom who takes his betrothed to his to his house. You know, so so when the groom receives his bride and takes her home, that's what that word receive means. Well, think about that. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when he talks about how he's going to receive his church to himself, he's actually talking about the rapture of the church when every believer whether they're asleep in Jesus or still alive, are going to be gathered together and we're going to meet the Lord there in the air and there we will always be with the Lord. That being the case, I believe that preterism must be wrong because this did not happen back in the first century. This did not happen back in the first century. Therefore, preterism is wrong because, first of all, it rejects the prophecies about the physical return of Jesus Christ. And preterism is also wrong because it rejects the prophecies about the rapture of Christians. And thirdly and finally, listen, preterism is wrong because it rejects the prophecies that point to the rebirth of Israel. And with this as the focus, let's make our way now back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the day of the Lord. You would look with me here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll back up and begin reading once again at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now as we take a closer look here at verse 2, We can see here that Paul, again, was calming the nerves of these Christians who had been duped into believing that they had missed the day of Christ Jesus. And it's possible that there are some here today who have been duped in a similar sort of way. Maybe you've been shaken in mind or troubled in spirit, uh, you know, maybe maybe by modern-day preterists who are still trying to convince us that the day of Christ has already come. That's what they want us to believe. They want us to think that the day of Christ has already come and, and there's no future rapture, there's no future second coming, there's no future millennial kingdom. And it's possible that you began to believe this. Maybe you're struggling thinking that this is the case, that this is as good as it's going to get. And maybe you're sad as a result. Listen, if this is something that you've been struggling with, I want to assure you that there's no good reason for us to be troubled by this heresy. The reason why? Well, it's because preterism has long been debunked. And one reason why is because it violates sound principles of biblical interpretation. Now, to further prove my point, I should remind you that this eschatological position stands on a frail foundation, which is based on the belief that the day of Christ Jesus was fulfilled by the Romans who were victorious in their attack on Israel. In an attempt to shoehorn this historic event into the prophetic promises that point to the day of Christ Jesus, the preterists, they try to convince us that the church has replaced the nation of Israel. That's what they want you to think. That the church has replaced the nation of Israel, which is better known as replacement theology. 
And so when Christ Jesus returned spiritually, uh, he allegedly raised up the Romans to conquer the nation of Israel so that the church could then come along and replace the chosen people of God. Now, this is a, an extremely intriguing interpretation of, uh, of what the Bible says, and especially as we consider the 144,000 Jews who will eventually be raised up to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ during the time of tribulation. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 7. There John tells us about the day when 144,000 Jews of all the tribes from the children of Israel, they're going to be sealed in order to serve our Savior during the time of tribulation. This is going to be uh, the most excited group of Jehovah's Witnesses you've ever seen. Okay, not in that sense. These Jews are going to be super excited as they set out to serve our Savior during the time of tribulation. And just to be clear, listen, John spent the bulk of uh, of Revelation chapter 7 presenting us with the list of the total numbers of Israelites, which will come from, as he uh, puts it, the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So much for replacement theology, huh? (laughs) No, the Jews are still here during the time of tribulation and they're serving our savior in the way that they ought to. And so much for, you know, the missing tribes theory that, you know, God's missing tribes of Israel. Where are they? Well, we find them right here in the time of tribulation serving our savior. It's also important for us to realize that the day of Christ Jesus is going to be fulfilled at a time when the nations of the world will gather together in the valley of Megiddo in order to wipe Israel from the face of the map. Proof of my point can be found all throughout the Old Testament scriptures where the prophets of God point to the day of the Lord as a time when the nations of the world will gather together against Israel. For example, it's in Joel chapter 3. There, the Lord describes the days during the tribulation in this way. He says, behold, in those days and at that time when I bring the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. You think God is happy with the two-state solution? You think God wants the promised land divided up? Of course not for this reason that every time our government steps in and tries to force some sort of two-state solution there in Israel, there's some sort of catastrophic storm that happens here in America. I I went and looked at the research. It's amazing to see every time our government steps in to try to to force a two-state solution, there's a hurricane, there's a tornado, you know, there's an an earthquake, there's some major catastrophe happens here in America. God does not want his land divided up. He is not looking for a two-state solution. He's eventually going to bring uh, you know, a, a very singular solution as he establishes his throne there in Jerusalem. That is going to happen. But during the time of tribulation, and specifically on the day of the Lord, Jesus will return and punish the nations that sought to destroy Israel. 
We also find a similar warning in the second psalm where the psalmist asks this. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's right, the day of the Lord is not going to work out well for the nations that took, you know, uh, took counsel together against Israel. It's also in Zechariah chapter 14 where the prophet Zechariah declares this. He says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnants of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Wow. This clearly was not fulfilled in 70 AD. This is still yet future tense. This will happen on the day of the Lord. And it's in the same chapter where the prophet Zechariah goes on to describe the day of the Lord in this way. He declares, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey and on the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. As we consider the way in which the day of the Lord will begin with the destruction of the enemies of Israel, I can't help but to wonder how, how, how can the preterist insist that all of this was fulfilled back in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem? Did, did their flesh dissolve where they stood? Did their eyeballs dissolve within their skulls or their tongues? Or No, no, this, this actually sounds like some sort of nuclear uh, situation here. This wasn't fulfilled in 70 AD. This has yet to be fulfilled, clearly. And with that, I have to ask, how can a rational believer actually believe that the Roman soldiers were the armies of heaven who were you know, clothed in linen, white and clean, and were serving the Lord there in the first century? Please understand that what happened there in 70 AD, uh, well, the, the, the Romans were not only you know, persecuting and, and, and destroying the nation of Israel, but they also began their persecution of Christians. And that persecution of Christians lasted until the time of Constantine in the 4th century. That's the millennial kingdom? That's the promise of the millennial kingdom? Seriously? That's what you believe? Please trust me when I tell you that the only way that these prophecies can be fulfilled is if the nation of Israel actually exists. 
The, the only way that there can be a literal fulfillment of the prophecies about this end-time Armageddon when the nations gather together against Israel is if Israel actually exists. And seeing how the, the Jews in Israel were scattered into the Gentile world, and by 138 AD, uh, you know, they were no longer a nation, well, then it's hard for me to believe that these prophecies aren't future tense. And yet the preterists will continue to say, oh no, the church, the church has replaced Israel. Israel's no more. God's done with Israel. And yet this flies in the face of the scriptures. This flies in the face of the scriptures. The Jews in Israel were scattered into the Gentile world by the early second century. And, and, and therefore the only way for these prophecies to be fulfilled is if the nation of Israel is actually revived and reestablished there in the land of promise. And listen, this was precisely what started happening back in the 1940s, right after World War II. As a matter of fact, it was by 1948 when the Israelites who escaped the concentration camps of the Third Reich they reestablished the state of Israel after returning to the land of promise and all by the power of God. And listen, all of this was according to the prophecy that the Lord presented through the writings of Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, it's in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the Lord declares, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, for the sake of clarity, uh, if you're wondering who these dry bones uh, represent, the Lord goes on in the same chapter and points out that, the, uh, that these dry bones, they represent the whole house of Israel. That's the way Ezekiel puts it. The whole house of Israel. And while it's true that Israel ceased from being a nation by the early 2nd century, it's also true that the dry bones of this nation were brought back to life 1,800 years later, according to the prophetic promises that the Lord presented regarding the rebirth of Israel. And it's sad to say that the preterist today still holds on to their replacement theology. They still hold on to their replacement theology. And it's sad, is what's, even more, what's even sadder is, is that preterism is gaining more and more adherence here in these last days. And, and I, it boggles my mind. Because clearly replacement theology is wrong. The dry bones have come back to life. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are on the horizon. I'll remind you that the preterist position includes the belief that the church has replaced Israel. And while this might have made more sense after the Jews were expelled from their land in 138 AD, replacement theology has been proven false. By 1948, replacement theology was proven false according to the fulfilled prophecies of the dry bones found in Ezekiel 37. And while it's true that the preterists continue to reject the prophecies that point to the rebirth of Israel, well, we can now say with all certainty that the preterists are not only wrong about the rebirth of Israel, but they're also wrong about the future battle of Armageddon, which currently appears to be on the prophetic horizon. Now, to sum all of this up, listen, preterism, it fails to fall in line with the historical facts. And not only that, but the preterist approach to uh, biblical interpretation violates the sound principles 
of biblical interpretation. It's for this reason that I must insist that preterism is provably incorrect. Preterism is wrong. It's wrong because it rejects the prophecies about the literal physical return of Jesus Christ. Preterism is also wrong because it rejects the prophecies about the rapture of the church. And preterism is wrong because it rejects the prophecies about the literal rebirth of Israel and uh, you know, uses replacement theology to di- dismiss all of that. And knowing that preterism has been proven to be wrong, there are those who are now embracing an eschatological position which has come to be known as partial preterism. Partial preterism. And we don't have time to get into all the different forms of partial preterism, but listen, the person who says that, they're, uh, they, that they've embraced partial preterism has really just embraced partial futurism. That's all it is. And the reason I say this is because the preterist who admits that there are still some prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled, well, this is just another way of saying that they're going to be fulfilled in the future, which means that they have to opt for a partial preterist point of view, which we can uh, point out is really just a partial futurist point of view. Now, just to be clear, a futurist is a Christian who is looking forward to the rapture of the church. The futurist is the, is the Christian who is looking forward to the second coming of Christ, knowing that these things have not yet been fulfilled. And as we continue to make our way through this epistle, we're going to learn more about the futurist position you know, as we study the next several verses. But for now, just let it suffice to say that partial preterism is mostly wrong, and the proof of my point can be found in the prophetic promise that the Lord Jesus presented to the Apostle John. It's actually in Revelation chapter 1. It's verse 1, where the Apostle John prefaced this book by, by saying this. He writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, uh, just to be clear here, Jesus was not uh, informing John that all of the things found in the book of Revelation would take place shortly after his resurrection and ascension. That's not what the word shortly means. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I'm about to ascend into heaven and shortly thereafter all these things will take place. No, no, he's, you know, Jesus was informing the apostle John that the prophetic events that we find in the book of Revelation will all happen shortly meaning in rapid succession. That's how this book is to be understood. That the minute the the, the first prophecy in this book is fulfilled, the rest of them will be fulfilled in very rapid succession. Once the rapture of the church occurs, the rest of the events that we find in the book of Revelation will begin to take place in rapid succession over the course of seven years, according to the timeline that we find in the book of Daniel uh, regarding the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel, which is a seven-year period of time, will take place in rapid succession. And listen, the preterist uh, who embraces a partial form of preterism wants to suggest that, you know, half of the book of Revelation has been fulfilled, but then 1,800 years later, we're still waiting for the rest of it to be fulfilled. Listen, that's not rapid succession. And so partial preterism must be wrong. Because if you believe that some of the book of Revelation has been fulfilled, but not all of the book of Revelation, and we're still waiting for another 1,000 years before the rest of it is fulfilled, well, this is not rapid succession. And therefore, not only is full preterism wrong, but partial preterism is also wrong. That's why I embrace the futurist position, because it is the correct position. 
Well, I simply want to assure you in closing that those who try to convince us that all of these prophecies or, or some of these prophecies were fulfilled in the past, listen, the book of Revelation, you know, as soon as it begins, it's going to kick off a, a series of events that will all happen very quickly. And I can assure you right now, we are not in the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus. Jesus is not ruling and reigning invisibly you know, from David's throne in Jerusalem. That's not happening. The lion's not laying down with the lamb right now. You know, the, the, the child can't play by the cobra's hole and, and, and not get bit. Listen, if your child's playing by the cobra hole, they're probably going to get bit, you know, because this is not the millennial kingdom of Christ. We're looking forward to the future fulfillment of the rapture of the church. We're looking forward to the future fulfillment of the second coming of Christ. We're still waiting for the blessed hope of the rapture and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I consider the signs of the times currently happening, well, I'm confident that it won't be long. I I don't think it's going to be very much longer until we hear a, a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And it's at that point in time when we will be caught up together as we're gathered together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But until that day comes, I encourage you, Christian, let's live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age as we continue to look forward to the future, moving towards the finish line of faith. Let's pray.